Hello and welcome to another episode of James Bond and Friends. James Bond this week is busy jumping train lines in Italy, so I'm your fill-in host, James Page from MI6 HQ and MI6 Confidential Magazine. Um, this week I'm joined by David Lee, Joe Darlington and Bill Koenig. Would you like to introduce yourself guys? Hi, I'm David Lee here. I run the jamesbonddossier.com. Uh, you can find me on Twitter and all over the uh, social media spectrum. I also wrote the complete guide to the drinks of James Bond, which is on Amazon and elsewhere. Good afternoon, gentlemen. I am Joseph Darlington. I do a humble little podcast and a YouTube channel called Being James Bond. And I have a even humbler little book called uh, Being James Bond, Volume 1. And I'm Bill Koenig. I run a, uh, a blog called The Spy Command. And I uh, also have another website, The Bond 25 Timeline, where I've been chronicling various developments in uh, the unfolding saga of No Time to no time to die i almost said no time to kill but <laughs> you wouldn't be the first bill to get the title wrong so uh, this week i mean in previous podcasts we've talked about when we've been talking about the films um we've talked about the villain's plot and the scale of it and whether that was a good thing or a bad thing or whether the stakes um affected the quality of the story so i thought we should do a like a dedicated episode talking about the villain's plots over the course of the film series and the scale of them and the stakes for Bond and the stakes for the world, um, the stakes for Britain, and um, how that affects the story, for better or for worse. Um, and also if films could be improved by adjusting the scale of the plot, which I think is the, probably the most interesting bit we'll get to. Um, but I just want to kick it off um, out of the gate. Um, which ones do we consider the big ones? Well, I reckon the biggest one really must must be Moonraker and the Spy Who Loved Me, um, because the the plan was to wipe out uh, civilization, wasn't it? So you, you can't really get bigger than that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the problem is the problem right. is there's a there's a lack of credibility in, in the in the ambition in the first place. So uh, that's uh, that's what lets them down. I, I would have to say Moonraker probably just nudges out the other one because Moonraker, he was literally going to obliterate the, the surface of the, the planet. Uh, Spy Love Me, I think, was just incrementally was going to happen by the, the kickoff with the two nuclear bombs fighting each other. And eventually we would get there. But I think Moonraker has to take the cake. And I was going to say, You Only Live Twice is like kind of close behind. Um, the idea was, like the spy who loved me, the idea was also to start a nuclear war. But the notion was that China would emerge as the world's preeminent power. And Spectre was doing it as a contractor for China. Um, so that, and that was the first, you know, let's start World War Three kind of plot. So... Uh, the other two kind of stem, you know, they're in that same path that You Only Live Twice started, but they went bigger and better, I guess. I'd say, well, Moonraker, the um, the virus um, only kills human life, right? Right. So the rest of the planet's intact. Whereas the plots for You Only Live Twice and um, specifically The Spy Love Me was just to nuke all the Earth um, and live underwater. So it was a bit more indiscriminate, <laughs> The Spy Love Me. Um Whereas the opposite is true of Honor Majesties, right? Which was, it was the um, biological strains to knock out crops and leave the humans intact. Um, yeah, what, what, what you're saying with The Spy Who Loved Me is that it's it's anti-human, but pro-ecology. Sub, 
aquatic ecology. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whereas Mo- Moonraker, Drax was very careful to maintain animal and plant life. <laughs> Sorry, I, I meant Moonraker. Yeah, yeah. So just replace the humans. Leave everything else the same. Well, well, not, yeah, replace humans because as, what was it that uh, Bond called it? The orbiting stud farm. And then they'd be ready to repopulate the Earth uh, after however many years or months or whatever. He, he, he was kind of vague about those, those <laughs> kinds of details. But what do we feel about, not the realism, I would say, but is this, are the stakes in those films conveyed well to the audience that that's what? Uh, I think because, the, I, I think because they're, they're not really believable, um, the, the, the audience doesn't buy into it as much as, say, um, you know, say, say Thunderball when the idea is that they're going to nuke a city or two. Uh, that becomes much more real, especially in the mid 1960s. So that could because it, it played on on the paranoia of the time. So um, I was about to say, and also in real life, after Thunderball came out, you had that plane that disappeared, and so it's like echoing the plot of the movie that it, that was just out. Um, so in that sense, Thunderball was closer to the probable or the plausible compared to the others so, i'm sorry to interrupt i just no that's okay what, 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 what plane what is oh it was in 1966 i i have to look it up but um oh back when steven soderbergh was going to do the man from uncle scott z burns was going to write it and burns's script was based on that 1966 incident i would have to like go back and look it up but yeah it was like a military plane that went down and in the ocean and they i don't know if they like never found it oh, I, but do you know what? I, I i don't know anything about this i'll, I'll have to uh, have to look it up at the weekend yeah in the late 60s there was a couple of stray nukes that accidentally fell i think in the carolinas and a five cent part which was the trigger device didn't fail or something and that's what saved the day yeah there's some interesting <laughs> history there which you know it was years later until like it was declassified right but there isn't. I don't feel Thunderball has that ticking clock kind of finale, though. That they were gonna, they were gonna nuke it. It was like they. It was just the fact that they had them and he got them back. It wasn't like they were about to set them off. Well, they they were. Well, yeah, they weren't about to. But that that, that was the threat. And um, I, I don't know. I, I'm a fan of Thunderball, so that you know obviously colors my opinion of it. But uh, the. Uh, they also you know, for, for me for me it works. They also tried to have a ticking clock effect, although it was in like hours instead of minutes and seconds. Because, like, there was that one time, uh, Felix. That's only fifty-five hours from now, and like Bond's kind of nodded his head. Yes, Felix, I know. I can that's figure two, it out. That's myself. two sleeps. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and about twenty-five martinis. <laughs> I think Octopussy did the ticking clock nuke better than Thunderball. Mm. And um, the world is not enough, maybe, too. Yes, because, you know, Goldfinger also had the ticking clock, but apparently they thought you could really get far enough away in three minutes. Where (laughs) where (laughs) in Octopussy, you know, be at least 20 miles away. Um, Mm. I I personally think Octopussy is by far the best use of the ticking clock in the whole franchise, frankly. I think they've really, you know, 
A View to a Kill was the follow-up, and they tried to do the same thing. And it was funny because I was just talking about this pretty recently. Uh, it, it's it's pretty effective because you know in your mind that if when this ticking clock goes off, people will die. Octopussy, though, amps it up because you do it in a crowded place where you can literally see people who will be dead in, in a matter of seconds if this is not stopped. So I, I think they do it by far the best. Yeah, having that visceral audience that are completely, mm. you know, ignorant of the situation until the very end, right? Exactly. Right. Yeah, it's just a shame that uh, one's dressed as a clown at that moment. <laughs> I, I like it. I do. I, think it's great. <laughs> I like I like the juxtaposition of the seriousness of the situation with the absurdity of the scenario. Mm. And, and incidentally, as long as, long as we're talking about the ticking clocks, I think the least effective would have to go to Spectre which I think people sort of forget even had one, really. Yeah, I, I was right. just thinking exactly the same thing, Joe. <laughs> it's almost like Countdown to Black Friday website launch on the <laughs> laptop, right? Mm. It's like, begs the question, though, if they had all these different countries from around the world, why it was Midnight GMT that they picked to um, start collaborating, even though those organizations already collaborate. Because um, in the 1980s, these timers were set to GMT. Right. And you couldn't change them. It's, it's simple. Yeah. They're made in Britain timer. <laughs> it only worked in one time well, zone. Well, the, the military works on, on GMT, doesn't it? I think. They, uh, they, Zulu, Zulu, Zulu time. Zulu time, yeah. They, yeah, they got right. them at a clearance sale. <laughs> it does beg the question, though, why Q had to hack the system to shut it down when he could have just changed the time. <laughs> might have been an easier job just to punt <laughs> just to punt the countdown a couple of weeks to have them give them some time to work it out but then they wouldn't need q in the scene and we wouldn't have the scooby gang <laughs> right <laughs> that's one thing you mentioned Joe inspectors i completely forgot the ticking clock inspector but that's something the craig areas craig era has avoided except for maybe you could argue the start of casino with the plane but that's not really a ticking clock. That's more a case of he's just got to stop the guy getting to where he's going. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. You're absolutely right. There is, yeah, I, I, the plane scene, the Miami scene, yeah, that I would say that kind of qualifies because at least something big and bad is going to happen. But, but you, it, you really don't get much of that in the Craig, Craig uh, era. But it's not the climax. It's not the the big right. finale. It's it's I don't know. Was it the end of Act One essentially? Um, mm. I mean, it's a tense scene. It's it's fairly well done, but. Um, it's 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 not like Goldfinger. It's not like Octopussy, where it's like this thing toward the end of the movie. Sorry, I was, I was just going to go off topic. And it, it, the somebody on Twitter the other day uh, was, was saying that uh, how how much better uh, Casino Royale was compared with many of the other films, and uh, how close it was to the book, and how um, how close. Uh, Daniel Craig's portrayal of Bond is to to Ian Fleming's Bond, and uh, uh, I, re I responded saying, "Yeah, but the the parkour scene in the book is much better than the film." <laughs> <laughs> well, and and uh, and uh, the Felix scene uh, being captured and being interrogated in the movie is so close to the novel. Yes. I, oh wait, it wasn't. <laughs> So yeah, when we put these questions together, I was thinking about the scale of the plots. Connery's era really kind of just gradually ramps up, right? Yeah. Um, well, you well, could say from Russia with Love is a little bit of a step back, but every film the the, the consequences get worse and worse and worse. Um, 
Roger kind Roger kind yeah. of flip like peaks and goes down again and comes back up. Dalton and Craig's era really haven't had the world ending plot scenarios. Right. Yeah, because the I, I was thinking about from Russia with Love uh, earlier when when I was uh, preparing for this, and uh, with that, if if Bond hadn't uh, hadn't achieved his objective, then uh, the co- consequences of that really were pretty bad for him, but. Uh, and they would have been pretty bad for Eon as well because they wouldn't have had a, a film series after that. But apart from that, um, you know, it's just like, well, uh, they bring somebody else in to be the new 007 and that's it. Yeah, the embarrassment to the establishment was the... the, the yeah, the, the embarrassment factor, sure. But there's, uh, you know, which was the aim of the, the, the plot, especially in, in, the, in the book. But, um, well, you know, it's... And in the novel, of course, it was being done by the Soviets, talking about from Russia with love now it's like as being done by the soviets and they were basically trying to create a new spy scandal in britain which of course had already had plenty by that point but um whereupon in the movie it's like it's being done by specter and specter's mainly wanting to steal the the decoding machine for itself so it can then sell it i assume and if if there's a little scandal that you know bond gets killed and embarrasses mi6 well that'd be a great side effect but that's not specter's main purpose in the you know for coming up with the plot i mean um somebody will pull me up if i'm wrong but i believe that during the filming of from russia with love that's when kim philby defected to the soviet union so in real life the embarrassment of mi6 actually took place during the filming of a film about the embarrassment of mi6 right so Kind of like Ooh, yeah. years later, Thunderball, well, a couple of years later, Thunderball, the same thing happened, right? Reality kind of happened at the filming of the same plot. But I think Philby was 63 when he popped up in, he, he forgot to like get his flight back and popped up in Russia. Yeah, it was 1963, yeah. All right. So, yeah, that happened literally during the filming. I seem to remember that. Mm. So, okay. you know, we we got to experience at the time what would have happened if Bond had failed <laughs> in reality, because, you know, it's a major embarrassment to the security services. So is from Russia, one of the least consequential plots in terms of the world. Well, I, I, I would say so from the perspective of today in, in the 1960s, um, it, it's probably more akin to the Profumo uh, scandal, because um, you know it would be a British agent sleeping with Russian agent and uh, sex tapes and whoa! It, but you know now it, it, in an era where you know everything's online all the time, um, I, I, I think it would be far. I, I think there would be some some kind of scandal, but um, far far less than it would have been in the 1960s. There'd be a scandal the following week, which would take over the news. Um, By the way, on Kim Philby, I just called it up in another tab. He actually defected in January 63 and From Russia With Love began filming in April. So it actually just before the filming. So it was was a little sensitive when they started filming. Interesting. So what are the other films where the stakes are really kind of, I think Skyfall is one of those where, yeah, there's, there's consequences to the other 
agents that are getting exposed, but it's really just a personal story. And yeah, that, 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 that's, also M, my, so. that's also on my list here. And uh, you can argue whether Bond uh, succeeded or, or failed too, because uh, failed miserably. Yeah, well, I, was about to, I, I was about to say, all right. The question was, what would happen if Bond failed? And I was thinking that he failed in Casino Royale because he loses the money. He didn't lose the money in the novel. Uh, you know, he wins the money from Le Chiff, but then it gets stolen out from under him in the movie. And uh, I didn't get a chance to rewatch the scene, but I did. Call, I did get my copy of the script out, and and they don't get to interrogate Le Chiffre either because he gets assassinated by Mister White. Yeah. So they get to know nothing about the organization and lose the money. Yeah, yeah. So, so my fig, my, I figure that uh, as soon as the guy with the, oh, the the one eye gets it out, gets the money out of the uh, bank, thanks to Vesper, you know, there's nothing to stop him from then immediately transferring electronically, right. and plus he's so he's transferred all the money, Spectre or Quantum or Acme Incorporated, whatever it was, uh, <laughs> had to begin with, plus all that MI6 money. And I figure that money then went into financing the Spectre call center in Spectre. That greater <laughs> yeah, well, that money had, had to come from somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> the the so, Spectre call center. <laughs> That's so good. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, if your call will be recorded, um, <laughs> and if we do not like what you say, you will be assassinated. <laughs> I, I've actually always felt that the, in the whole that that's sort of been the the entire Craig run really is that Bond continually fails at his missions. I mean, I always felt that there were two very odd things about the Craig films. Uh, I guess maybe you could say until Spectre, but one was that he never got the girl in the end. And then the other was that he was constantly failing at his mission. Uh, in, in Casino Royale, like you said, he he the money gets taken back. He loses that. He loses the girl, et cetera. Uh, in Quantum, Mr. White gets away. The, the nearest I can figure is that the whole plan of Dominic Green was to monopolize one country's water supply. If you want to talk about low stakes, I, I don't know if you can get much lower than that. Frankly, I thought Bond should go after the cable company next. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but then in Skyfall, this, his his mission is to protect M. I mean, if there's any, I mean, honestly, I feel like the, the what is his mission in that film if not to protect M? And M dies at the end. So I kind of well, feel like well, it was to re- it was also to recover the drive which he lost. And oh, there that. you go, which we sort of forgot about, etc. <laughs> <Right. laughs> so, and, and you could and you could argue it was also to kill Silva. So, out of three, he did one. <laughs> there's that, yeah, yeah. So, like you know, a, a three thirty three batting average gets you into the Hall of Fame in right. Major League Baseball. Hey, but, but, uh, well, after the damage has been done, though. <laughs> yes. So, so uh, the Daniel Craig summed up in one word: loser. <laughs> uh, yeah there's the headline J- Daniel Craig is the worst James Bond <laughs> <laughs> or Daniel Craig's James Bond is the worst James Bond <laughs> if we if, if we got into the details of, of Spectre and Blofeld in Spectre we could probably seriously make that case but I won't open that can of worms today <laughs>
So what what other films have got low stakes that may um, I I always lower, felt that they lower the threshold of the film or something, you know. I, I always felt that Doctor No had incredibly low stakes. In fact, I feel like as many times as I watched that film, I feel like I never really understand what he's doing to the rockets, the rockets in question. He's always sort of hampering or tinkering with these rockets from Cape Canaveral, but they never, I don't know if they ever actually specifically say yeah. what the threat is that he's well, going to I, do. I think I think we take it for granted that we've, we've been around the film so long in the books that we know it was like radio toppling to throw the gyroscopes out or whatever it was mm-hmm. and that crash into the sea rather than successfully launch. But yeah, in the yeah, film. Yeah, I, I think it's just because, you know, uh, just because the, the, the in the time that uh, Doctor No w- was was made and, and released, um, the states was uh, at the beginning of the um, attempt to put man on the moon, and so uh, I think if you see it in that context, that somebody interfering with America's uh, rocketry ability is going to be seen as interfering with with a, one of these, you know, a, a big ambition for the country, and so. Um, and, and not only the mm. country, but theoretically the free world, quote unquote. Yeah. Um, so, and and of course, we talked about this before. In the film, they amped it up to make it like this was the first. Now, I don't know if it's supposed to be just a rocket. I think M says a rocket around the moon. It would. It's based on that. It sounds like this fictitious mission is something akin to Apollo Eight that you know, successfully orbited the moon, but didn't attempt a landing and then returned to earth safely. Uh, at least that's how I always took it. Um, so yeah, this is for the free world. Here's the other thing though. was like, why does Spectre care? This is in the book. Of course, Dr. No worked for the Russians and of course they want to, the Russians want to like ruin America's space program, but why does Spectre care? Unless I suppose the Russians hired them, but that's never specified just what Spectre gains from doing all this. Uh, we got to have Dr. No do something. Uh, let, well, let's put him in Jamaica and let him monkey around with those. Uh, monkey <laughs> around. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we were talking before about the, uh, the plots to start a world war. Um, you know, a couple of them do that. One of the ones that we didn't mention. And again, I think it's sort of funny because the reason I think we don't think of it is because the, it's not very well presented in the plot, but anyway, tomorrow never dies. I mean, the plot there yeah. is to start a world war, and I almost feel like it's the 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 immediate threat is never really felt in that. I wasn't sure whether it's a world war or just a war between those two countries, which would be catastrophic enough. Um, you know, the Raymond Benson novelization got into more detail that um, Carver. In addition to getting a you know cable TV monopoly in in China, he then had ambitions to mess around in other regions. And in the novelization, he shows Bond these fictitious headlines of various you know bad things that'll happen once he gets done with this China UK war thing. Um, well, the China UK war would be, turn into a China NATO war, which would then turn right. into a China US war. So right. I don't. That's that's kind of that's not explored in the film. No, that that's what the consequences would be. Yeah, but there is no real American angle in that movie, which there should be, I think, other than you know the Vietnam Jack Wade joke. But
mean, I think Diamonds is one of those films where the, the stakes are actually pretty high in terms of having a privately controlled space weapon that can just start blowing shit up anywhere on the planet um, to the highest bidder. But it's kind of presented as a bit of a joke. Um, as, as kind of an afterthought. It's almost yeah. like as the, the, as the film is finishing up, they figure the stakes are not very high, so we better do something here. So then you get the big satellite. You know, you're talking before about how for a lot of the actors, 10 years, the, the stakes kind of fluctuate a little bit. I, I kind of feel like in, in the case of Connery and Moore, they, they kind of start low and then they kind of creep up. And it's almost like once the stakes are high, they can't go back down again. And I kind of find that that's why Diamonds, like, ends, again, ends up with the big murder satellite, because you can't <laughs> you can't dial things back after you do Thunderball and after you do um, Honor Majesties and, and You Only Live Twice. Uh, they, they can't lower the stakes again. So that's why you get that thing. And I sort of feel like Roger Moore does the same where the first few films, they, they, they start out kind of low. But then once you sort of hit the spy, I love me. It's hard to, to backtrack again. Well, they did, although they did backtrack a bit for For Your Eyes Only in mm. that it was that whole thing with the ATAC. Now, the ATAC, oh, that we could, you know, anyone who controls ATAC could uh, have our submarines launch missiles at our own cities. Well, okay, then you tell your submarines to turn their ATAC off. Um, I mean, it would cause a problem, obviously. They would have to, like, come up with a replacement, you know, suddenly for, for mm. ATAC. Uh, yeah. ATAC 2.0. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Download the latest firmware. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I, I the, the um, for, for your eyes only. I, I, yeah, I don't think the stakes are particularly high. It, it's another low stakes mm. film. Yeah, it, I would it, agree with that. And and it, and that line about worse yet, the you know the our own submarines could attack our own cities. I think that was kind of tossed in there to kind of make it sound bigger than it really was. But yeah, it's like today yeah. we'd say, oh, we just download a you know, software patch and <laughs> move on. But, it, you know, I, and what you were saying um, earlier, Joe, about the stakes getting bigger with each film, I, I think that uh, if you look at the film, that that look at the film, if you look at the series, that that always ha- happens, that they want to outdo the previous film. They want to outdo the previous right. film, but they get, to a, they get to a stage where they, they just can't outdo what they've just done and so they, they have to dial it back again and right. uh, you know, to a, a certain extent i suppose that happened with, with casino royale and so uh, you know they d- made the big decision to, to reboot it but you know post moonraker where could they go after that they, mm-hmm. they had to dial it back well and, and with the living daylights i'm not sure the stakes there are especially high it's it's almost kind of like live and let die where it's kind of a big drug deal. Now what elevates it is that uh, they end up killing two British agents. Is it two or three? Mm. Um, you know, so they, you know, a number of MI6 personnel had been killed and this cannot stand from, you know, M's perspective. So it, it's, it's something that's very serious and needs MI6's attention, you know, cause you just can't let your people get killed, especially by a nutty guy who thinks he's a, <laughs> A general or whatever, um, Joe Don Baker, but it's but in the sense of you know the world's going to end kind of thing, it's not even close. Mm. I think I think in the Living Daylights you could you could make a better argument that it's really about money laundering and that the drug part of it was sort of a, a, just right. a, an afterthought or a side bit. Right. Uh, so I I would actually argue that maybe the Living Daylights has very little because it has not it's nothing more than just one general trying to launder some some money essentially 
Right. Yeah. And, 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 um, and of course the Russian, uh, KGB guy, he's embezzled funds or whatever. So mm. he's, I mean, you even have the, the allies, Bond's allies are the ones selling the drugs, frankly. They are the ones saying, I don't care. I don't, I don't care if the Russians die from my bullets or their own drugs. So, right. So <laughs> I, I think in terms of when you get back to the, you know, the essential question about whether or not a big plot, uh, a high stakes plot makes the film better. I, I kind of feel like on one hand, I would say a, a resounding no. And then maybe as an afterthought, I would correct myself and say, well, because I, I sort of feel like in most cases, the the larger plot does not necessarily guarantee a better film. In fact, I can I would almost argue that sometimes, you know, they always say that a, a good Bond film is only as good as its villain. And I think that's that's true to an extent because not that the villain has to be a larger than life personality, but when you have a very motivated villain, uh, I think Casino Royale is one of the best cases where the stakes are not very big. Yet the villain, because he is is a cornered rat at, at this point, it actually makes him more more dangerous. Right. Uh, and I think that works to the film's advantage. Uh, Silva. Uh, the stakes are are almost hard to even find in the film, frankly, except that he's made a threat and we have to get him before he gets M. Uh, you know, he's the, the, the drive and the, the agents is, is a factor. Sure. But again, we don't really feel that emphasis. But the reason why it works is because Silva's such a good villain. Right. Uh, on the other hand, though, I find that like for the, the early Roger Moore films, I think Live and Let Die and uh, Golden Gun do you do feel a sense of of there's an emptiness there because there's no over you know big threat we watch and we sort of don't really know why this is so important yet uh so yeah i guess i i guess the answer is i don't know and i, I kind of go back and forth on both but i will say that i i think the strength of the villain and his personal ambitions can definitely shift uh, the plot in general. And, and by the way, I will also go back to the idea when you do have those ticking clocks, uh, Octopus, again, is, is one of my favorites of this. That's where you do really feel a sense of urgency. And and when they work it so that the finale of the film ties into that big countdown and that big high stakes uh, situation, that's when it really works. And with Live and Let Die, I was also thinking that, um, you know, does anyone really believe that Dr. Kananka could really drive the mafia out of the drug smuggling business? Um, no, I, I, I think all those mafia families would have him rubbed out. Um, mm. Still, though, it is a great villain speech where he uh, was it Roger Moore's line is that should leave a certain number of families, something or other. And he says, oh, they'll be driven positively out of their mind." And subsequently out of the business, leaving me and the telephone company as the only growing monopolies in this country for years to come. You know, it's it's silly, but it's like a great line. And Yafik Koh delivers it very well. That's arguably his best scene in the whole movie. your ears david because i'm going to say um is that why the man with the golden gun is often a, considered a bit limp in terms of stakes because the stakes are well bond is 
marked for assassination, which is actually not even the plot because that's not what happened. Despite every blurb mm. you read about that book, Scaramanga does not send the bullet to my six. Right. Uh, but that's how it's always described that film. Um, so he shows up thinking Scaramanga is going to kill him, but he wasn't. And he actually respects him and would have left him alone. So um, it's actually bonds being a bit of a dick um, going after Scaramanga <laughs> at that point. Right. Um <laughs> And what would be the outcome if he failed? Well, you know, MI6 would have to find a new replacement for 007. That would be it. Nobody would hear about it. Uh, Things would carry on. But Scaramanga himself is so calm and collected and chill about the whole situation. He's not like you said about Le Chiffre being a cornered rat and being dangerous. He's just like totally at home and thinking he's going to be fine. So stakes are pretty low. It also uh, goes into... uh Something I mentioned on a previous podcast about Bond not being the most strategic thinker because he's manipulated by Andrea uh, into going yeah, after. Yeah, he's totally Scaramanga. sold down the river on that one. Yeah, and uh, and so when it finally comes, push comes to shove, it's like, well, I'll just fly to Scaramanga's Island, bring my gun, and see what happens. Actually, and if you think about it, if there was if there was no such thing as a Solex agitator in that film. Bond would have said to Andrea, oh, you sent it? Oh, okay, good. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, and going back to the, you know, the earliest uh, iterations of the script, when, when Mankiewicz started, you know, there was no Solex agitator. It was strictly, you know, mano a mano. He wanted to, you know, essentially be a duel between these, these guys. And then he leaves the project. Maybom comes aboard and, Suddenly, we've got this Solex agitator thing, which was intended to have a a news peg, so to speak, you know, energy crisis and all that being in the headlines. But in that sense, it doesn't age well because, okay, based on the end of the movie, oh, the energy crisis is solved and we'll have clean energy forever in a day. Well, no, not so much. Uh, <laughs> by the time of The Spy Who Loved Me, it's like no one – even remembers the Solex agitator and all that clean energy we were supposed to get. Yeah. Well, the, the only thing I've got to say about this is that you're messing with my childhood. <laughs> <laughs> but Sorry about that. My point to that was Scaramanga, when they meet at the um, the kickboxing place, he's like, basically like, I didn't think we'd ever meet. Um, it's good to meet you. See you later. Yeah. You know? He doesn't even want to pick a fight at that point. <laughs> He's, he's treating Bond with respect. He, I mean, he's he's saying like, "Don't move, you know, I'll, or I'll be forced to kill you." But I don't want to kill you. You know, I admire you, and goodbye and good luck. Yeah, and then, then Bond is then Bond's like, "Well, I've I've packed all these safari suits, so I'm going to come after you." Right. right? <laughs> 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 it's, if he if he didn't uh, put Brett Eklund in the trunk. The, the movie's over right there. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. So is is that a candidate for lowest stakes um, award along with From Russia With Love? And what else would we throw in that bottom you tier know, of I, stakes? I think you have to give it to From Russia With Love because it's a decoding machine. Um, and you know what? Probably the Russians will come out with a new model next year. So you'll have your like, oh great, we can like decode all their well, top secret signals and then the other thing the other thing is built, there's multiple decoding machines. Right. Whereas <laughs> yeah. there's only one Solex agitator, apparently. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> so, right. 
now now you say so he had so Bond had Bond had one shot at Solex, but they could have sent like dozens of MI six agents across the country across the world looking for the other decoders. But if, <laughs> you know? if you if you read the book and the description of the uh, in in the book, it's called the Spectre uh, decoding machine rather than the Lecter, and uh, so. I uh, can't imagine why they thought they had to change it for the film, but um, it, it's clearly <laughs> it's clearly based on the Enigma uh, the Enigma device uh, that, the, yes. that the, the Germans uh, had during the, the Second World War, and yeah. um, the and, and at Bletchley Park they they spent you know they had a whole team dedicated to to cracking the Enigma codes, and uh, once they did uh, with their very very. Uh, basic mechanical computers, uh, they were able to understand you know, a, a lot of the, um, the, the, the the traffic being sent uh, um, to uh, to the armed forces in 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 Germany, and and the the naval Enigma machine was different to the army one, and the the Italian the Italian set a version of it too mm-hmm. for their military use and but the but the the significance of cracking the naval enigma device were, were, were massive because they could suddenly get an idea of where uh, where all the german submarines were and so um, even though you know it, it's only a coding device the the actual implications uh, would be huge uh, in the case of war yeah but in the case of the cold war it's basically just sniffing cables at that point and there's not really the same stakes in terms of no, what the messages sure, contain sure. the other thing is there's one there's one of these in every single russian embassy so they could have just raided any one of them to get the same machine um didn't have to be the one that bond went to with the plot but it's inter- you know what's interesting is when you start to get into all these if you singled out the von films that sort of have that MacGuffin plot where there's just some device and we all have to get it. I guess you could sit here and just sort of say, well, which, which actual MacGuffin was, was the most important. I mean, you have, you have like the Lecter machine, you have the ATAC machine, you could possibly argue the golden eye device, et cetera. So I suppose you could literally sort of start to measure, well, how threatening were these devices? And based on that, that's how big the plot was. That's a good point. Golden eye, there's, there's two, one gets used. There's one left. Hmm. Right. Because it's a go- because it's a government, but you know, government program. It's a one-use device um, versus private enterprise. I mentioned mm. this before. Like Blofeld, he can build lasers that keep going. Mm. Um, <laughs> so, and actually, actually, Goldeneye is pretty effective in that respect. And I never really gave it much thought before. But in Goldeneye, at least they fire one off, and you can see the damage it can do, uh, which which will add to the, to the threat. We've seen what it can do. Imagine if you shot this down at London. Uh, yeah, the other the other ones don't exactly have that aspect, right? Which actually goes back to something that Tom Mankiewicz says in his commentary track on um, for, for "Live and Let Die," which is you demonstrate something once, you establish what it can do, and then once you do that, you can pretty much do anything. So, in his case, he was talking about something else, but it's the same basic principle by having that. Um, that one time where they use the golden eye, okay, now we know it's serious. The audience accepts it, and so later in the movie, we got to stop it. We got to stop it. You know, there's an actual sense of urgency. I, I, to I it. mean, th- th- thinking about the whole thing, uh, I, th- I think Joe is right that um, the 
having a a bigger uh, evil plan, uh, it doesn't necessarily make a, a better film, uh, as demonstrated very uh, aptly by, by Moonraker. Um, it it needs to have high stakes, but not they need to be stakes that people can believe in and there's also something else which i think is quite important is that the the villain's mission statement needs to be uh, understood very uh, well you know um so sometimes it's, it's quite difficult to to sum up what they're actually trying to achieve and if if you can describe what is happening uh, or, or or the aims of the villain in a single sentence then uh, I think it's much more effective because it, it's it's far easier to to actually comprehend what's going on and what they're trying to to gain. Also, in some of the movies with big stakes, they do a they kind of disguise it at first. So, so for example, with Goldfinger, M doesn't say Bond, you know, 007, Goldfinger's going to tr- you know try and raid Fort Knox. You got to stop him. No, instead, it's you know he's smuggling gold out of this country and. You know, we need you to, you know, establish, you know, how it's being done, et cetera. And so it's, of course, during Bond's investigation of Goldfinger then that he stumbles on that Goldfinger has something much bigger and more catastrophic in mind. And then the same way with um, Octopussy, where it's like, okay, one of our men's been killed. He had this Fabergé egg in his hand. We don't know what's going on, but, you know, we need you to find out. And then, of course... In the course of his investigation, then you find out there's this plot to, you know, detonate a nuclear bomb on a U.S. Air Force base in Germany. So that's a kind of interesting way of doing it. Rather than going for the big stakes immediately, you kind of try to draw the audience in and get to the big stakes later. Um, same with Moonraker. Um, same with um, A View to a Kill. I'm going to slip that one in there. Um, maybe dine of the day you could argue the same thing that it was this investigate this guy he's a little bit dubious he might cheat at sport and see where it goes and then uncover the big plot later yeah so twisting this around a little bit in terms of this instead of the scale of the plot is it more successful when the plot is slowly unpeeled throughout the film versus here's your mission go do it which is like the man with the gold gun to say, throw that one under there, which is go, go take two weeks off and kill Scaramanga. I I personally will say wholeheartedly. Yes. I like it much better when the buildup is a little slower. Uh, When you kind of, I mean, there's something to be said for like the Thunderball plot where we got to, we got the message. They're going to blow up the world. You got to go find them. And that's fine. Uh, but there's not a lot of room for nuance there. I kind of find that when you're doing a plot like, I mean, Octopussy, and I feel like I'm, I'm I feel like today's the day where I seem to be just totally <laughs> talking about how much Octopussy is the greatest movie ever. Uh, but that to me is a great example where they do, like you said, they start out slow. I think we're investigating your murder. Then we seem to be investigating jewelry smuggling. Then we get to the much bigger plot and the stakes now suddenly have, have, increased dramatically and i agree with you by the way that i think a view to a kill does it also uh it's a little clumsier in the view to a kill because because again i i i'm never crazy about the idea you know this uh we have a problem with these microchips uh etc etc what about max zorin himself you know the owner of the company maybe he's doing it um 
And then, you know, then they have the thing with the, the horse racing and it almost feels like the horse racing stuff is going on. And then it's the end of that act. And then we come back yeah. and then we're into the real plot, right, right. which it seems to just start off with him descri- explaining his Goldfinger plot. Um, but yes, I, I do find it to be much more interesting when they start out slower and then, you know, again, you're, and then the stakes slowly increase. Yeah. The, uh, the biggest problem I have with a view to kill apart from Roger being too old is the whole, the production team didn't understand what a microchip was. So like they don't get loosely bagged and put in wooden crates on a production line. And you also don't have like glass beakers of them hanging around and people holding them up going, oh yeah, that looks like a good one. Like the, like the, like it's a like it's Good. a like it's a bag of peanuts or something. It just doesn't happen like that. Like you can tell you can tell that well this is a this is a quality microchip just by looking at the outside of it. It's like good grief. feel about casino then is that one of those films where the stakes are still pretty much known out of the gate would you say like everybody's you know bonds given his mission and it's pretty cut dry what the villain scheme is everybody knows what the villain scheme is from the beginning yeah well with with casino royale though the the thing that uh, tops the the villain scheme really is the love story and uh, if you haven't read the book the the fact that uh, Vesper has uh, betrayed Bond is it should be a bit of a shock yeah 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 you know it's funny I, it, as we were talking before about the stakes in Casino you're absolutely right when we were talking about how the you know the big explosion and the people one of the things I always felt like Casino was lacking if there was like one tiny little change I could I could make was they needed a shot of the interior of that big airplane. I, and I and I kind of find it odd that they didn't. Full of but, people would be even better, right? Exactly, right. Like like a like all a the big, journalists, oh, the world's all press. the journalists, and and right, the world's press and everyone else was celebrating with glasses of champagne. Look how great this is. That's the. I mean, this is what that scene is about. Is about saving the people that are in that airplane. Uh, otherwise, it's it's literally just you're blowing up expensive hardware, uh, which is fine. But again, doesn't do much for for me as far as a a big stakes uh, intense scene would be. Uh, and it's interesting that that scene again happens, like you said, at the end of the first act. Uh, a scene like that you would think would be more suited for the finale, but that's just not how this particular film is set up. Uh, so, but with that in mind, I I like the fact that the the stakes kind of change or maybe not maybe it's not about the stakes but the film is interesting sort of for different reasons than the actual stakes itself again you have a great villain who's cornered and it's his ferociousness that makes the uh you know the the, the scenes intense etc um but again yeah there's, there is sort of an up and down as far as actual stakes go and i just now thought about with tomorrow never dies it's like okay the UK and China are at loggerheads. They're going to get into a war. M says, we think Elliot Carver's behind it. So Bond, right. go get him. And it's kind of, <laughs> and off we go. And, you know, go mm-hmm. and specifically pump 
Paris covered for information. Oh, she probably doesn't know me. We'll make her remember. Um, kind of thing which is amusing after the previous movie where m called him a misogynist dinosaur in this movie <laughs> he's basically <laughs> she's basically uh i don't know <laughs> encouraging it's, bad it, habits yeah it's, it seems inconsistent shall we say I never understood. I, I I thought that they wrote themselves out of that problem when they said, you know, the mysterious signal came from Carver satellites, which is fine. And then you sort of go, why would she not bring that up in the big meeting? There was a mysterious signal. Well, well what? tell us more about this. Right. And it was uh, based on the uh, Singapore station. That's I, presumably the same Singapore station that uh, found the faint echoes of the Spectre spaceship going down the Sea of Japan area. They're quite busy in Singapore, I guess. <laughs> One of the most stations. Right. Um, that's my big problem with quantum is the whole quantum. I mean, you talked about like the golden gun. If he hadn't thrown Mary Goodnight in the trunk, it would have been the end of the film. Right. Quantum, if people just talked to each other, it, would, it wouldn't have happened. Because everybody has pieces of information that should be shared with other people, which would then bring the plot to a close pretty quick. But they don't talk to each other and therefore have this conflict all over the place and missing pieces of information. It's just, yeah. I I agree with that wholeheartedly. And honestly, that's, that's a huge pet peeve of mine. And I find that um, it's one of those things, I I guess if you're in the writing room, you think no one's going to notice it, but I feel like everyone notices it where if if you have something, if, if, if someone is not saying something and that's why we have these confused confusion and that's why the plot goes on, it definitely a big pet peeve. And frankly, it's one of the reasons why, one of the reasons why Spectre kind of drives me nuts because for some reason in the opening, Bond is sitting across with M, the new M, who we decided at the end of the last film was an okay guy, but now Bond is not going to share why he was where he was and the message he got, et cetera, et cetera. Right, Yet, for no, for no good reason. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I just felt like doing it, so I did it. But then by the end of the movie, what do you got for me, 007? Blah, 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 he, he, you know, the whole plot comes out. <laughs> like, in, 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 in super sped up motion, blah, 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 Ernst Stavro Blofeld, whatever. Well, you could have said that at the beginning of the movie, and we probably would have gotten a little further, a little quicker. Well, well also, is since you bring up Spectre, so... Um, I once said, oh, he goes rogue yet again. And someone argued, no, he didn't. M sent him on that mission. I said, Judy Dench M, her authority ended when she died. <laughs> it's like right. he doesn't trust. And meanwhile, he doesn't trust his new superior <laughs> with this right. information. Yeah, that was, that. you know, and again, I feel like I'm getting off track and I promise I'll, I'll dial it back. But I, it just seemed like that was sort of the, the incarnation of the Judy Dench M. You always had to have this subplot going on where M doesn't trust James Bond in the beginning. By the end, he wins her over. And you figured by the end of Skyfall, oh, I guess we're, we're done with that. But by Spectre, boom, we're right back into this idea. M and Bond are butting heads in the beginning, but by the end, it's all going to be patched up and squared away. Yeah, it's, yeah I, think, it's like, I think the worst example of that, well, the best of the worst, depending on which you look at it, is the world is not enough, where Bond tries to explain to M that, yeah, Electra's probably the bad in here, and I know you liked her dad, but I think she's bad. <laughs> she's like, don't be silly, and then, of course, gets kidnapped. <laughs> she gets, that, that's she, actually, she gets kidnapped actually, after, after her henchmen then, like, kill all these people. It's like, okay, right. M, do you understand now? Um, <laughs> Well, Judy Dench's reign as M was not very good, was it? <laughs> A lot of missteps. Missteps and alcohol. 
<laughs> and and travel unnecessary travel. Yeah. I think she was trying to get to like platinum elite airline status, and she says, "You know what? I really need to go to Bolivia now, just to get those extra miles." And oh, and, and Russia. I'll the head of the British Secret Service will pop up in Russia. Yeah, I know. It, it, it drives me nuts that she, she's out in the field so much, and uh, to to a certain extent with um, uh, with the new M as well. It's just why why would M go out in the field so much? It's it sent his people to go out well, and do okay, it. You brought up Judy Dencham going to Bolivia, so she she goes there and says, "I have to take you in." She brings you know what six to eight big thug guys with her, and then Bond beats him up. And then it's like, oh, I trust him. Like, what? <laughs> right, What's right. going on? <laughs> what happened in the last 30 seconds other than him being wildly insubordinate? <laughs> so is, is Quantum a film that we could improve by upping the stakes rather than the I think so, the yeah. yeah. At, at least clarifying the, the stakes. If I don't know if it has to be a lot bigger, but yeah, that, 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 yeah, that, that, that goes to, to my, uh, that the villain needs to have a, uh, uh, an easy to understand mission statement. Well, and apparently that that plot was based on something that happened in real life. Except I think in quantum, oh, we're going to like double the uh, water rates once we control the water supply. And I guess in real life, the company that managed the corner of the supply tripled the rate. So it's like, oh, it's not even as big as what we're basing it on <laughs> they, in real life. They, they dialed it back for the Bond film. <laughs> oh, that's unrealistic. <laughs> oh, nobody would believe that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I've I've always had that problem with quantum. I, I I sometimes look at that plot and I say to myself, I don't even know if that's illegal, frankly, much less right. uh, a villain plot. Yeah, basically, I mean, it's, if, it's if, despicable and immoral. Right, but, exactly. Yeah, it's, <laughs> you know, it's it's immoral corporate behavior. You, you, they got a monopoly on something and they're going to raise the price. That I, again, I don't. I I doesn't that happen every single day? Other other places. Well, I mean, in parts of the United States, Nestle is like bottling all the natural water that comes out, and meanwhile, the local residents. Yeah, I mean, it's not far off, but it's totally totally legal. And also, if Green were just a smidge more subtle and like not killing people willy dilly, <laughs> he could have like gotten away with it. Yeah, I, I think Quantum of Solace would have been uh, a bit better, and I, I do like it. I've got to say, uh, I wasn't. I've said this before. I wasn't a fan when it first came out, but I, I have grown to like it. But I think it would have been improved if they'd had the ending that was shot but not used. Uh, right, which. Uh, I can't. I, I don't. I don't remember the details of it. But it's well. It's um, the um, it's the prime minister's right hand man, right? It's Guy um, Haynes, isn't it? Guy Haynes, who's sitting in yeah. the in the um, in the nice oh, right, in the right. nice house with Mister White having a chat, and it's uh, so it's exposed that you know um, quantum is in leagues with the the what do they call it in the UK the uh, the deep state, right? Um, and it's all a stitch up, right? And then Mr. White gets killed, doesn't he? But thankfully, they, they chopped it off the end. I'd say thankfully they chopped it off the end. But mm. I, I think what that film really needed was, you know, the finale of that film, if the plot really was this whole thing about the water supply, what the finale needed, I think, was some a big action piece where at the end, the, the dam bursts, uh, possibly taking out the baddie in the process, but then the water goes back to the people. 
Cut, like, cut, then, cut to yeah. scene of villages pumping water out the ground. <laughs> exactly right. All, the, the, the rivers are all filling in and everybody's cheering and happy. I mean, again, that this is supposedly what this plot is all about. And you literally never see the, you know, there's a, there's a one spoken comment about, well, I guess you'll have to go knock those dams down later. Right. Okay. All right, James Bond, but you're here. Why don't you, you know, well, well, isn't that kind of what the whole. Well, also there's that sequence where there's a uh, bond and, um, the woman agent are walking and they're like grimly looking at all the thirsty villagers and it's beautifully photographed, but Bond could say, Hey, there's water back there. About oh, right. <laughs> oh, 10 kilometers. Maybe it's kind of underground. But hey, there's plenty of it back there. <laughs> Bring buckets. <laughs> So, Joe, you mentioned Octopussy and the ticking clock works really well. I'd say, thinking about it now, Goldeneye does a pretty good job of the whole ticking clock, even though it's not a bomb. There's still a countdown, mm. there's still a countdown and there's personal stakes, and then there's the wider stakes. Um, so I forgot that one earlier when we were talking about good examples of that countdown, which yeah. you know is mocked by the Austin Power series as the you know, 30 seconds and counting. Um, <laughs> right we don't it's it's not used that much in the franchise yeah. i and it, you know it's funny honestly and i i've never i don't know why that is because it is i again i feel like when they do that it's so incredible i mean even goldfinger see again like you know e- even the actual deaths that were that were you know the, the the big threat was that goldfinger was going to gas the people at fort knox killing them uh so that was bad but once that problem was solved and once we saw everybody standing up it was kind of like all right well no big deal i mean we still have to stop the bomb from going off but the bomb was really it it was threatening the gold supply more than anything else i always felt like you know the the real big threat is not exactly there i mean the people there will will no doubt um be killed but i i I find it to be much much more effective in octopussy uh than anything else and again you mentioned golden eye yeah, it is the ticking clock, but I feel like it's your attention is sort of all over the place, and the overall effect is sort of watered down. Um, Octopus, I find again, it's so superb because all of these sort of plot, not plot threads, but just the questions that we all had, all sort of converge on this one moment where everyone is is now all focused on the same exact point. Uh, the questions earlier, why, why, why did this person have the egg? Why was he dressed like a clown? Why was he killed by, uh, knife throwers? Um, all of this sort of converges on this point. And again, I find it to be the, the, one of the most effective, uh, climaxes. I mean, it's, it's one of the most effective climaxes that don't have like the big cavalry moments, like in the, the spy who loved me, et cetera. Uh, destroy the, the destroy the base finale. Right. Exactly right. Yes, the big right. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm kind of surprised that they, they don't use it as often. And I was about to say, with Goldeneye, the ticking clock is communicated in part by Boris, who is not the most serious character. I am invincible, mm. and he's like shaking his computer when you know uh, what's her name had sabotaged things, and 
that's a little over the top. So that's, you know, it's the countdown is supposed to be tense, but Boris is kind of goofing it up a bit. Very true. Dying of the day, just to throw it in there. Didn't really have the ticking clock, but it the laser actually started firing on the DMZ. So work had begun. The actual plot has started when the Antonov finally crap, you know, gets stripped down and crashes. But mm-hmm. that so that the, the is the impact of that loss because the plan's actually in action <laughs> during the finale. Like it's actually going. And it's just a, the fact that they stopped it from completing. I, I yeah I would agree with that I there's a, there's a couple times where that happens and again not that I want to make this a specter kicking bash session but uh, oh, why not you know I, <laughs> I mean what, you know one of the things I've never understood about specter is again even though they're trying to do that ticking clock at the end uh, again I I have all I've seen so far is evidence that anything the bad guy wants to know he can find out. Like literally everything, they 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 go to the trouble to get Money Penny a whole brand new cell phone that this would be untraceable, etc. Right. And somehow the the baddie is he's got a recording of the conversation she has on that very phone. So what's left? So the idea that this whole thing is is this quest for information when it seems like they have it all already. Again, where's the threat? What happens when that clock, when that uh, ticking clock goes down? As far as I can tell, nothing nothing of any significance. Make it convenience that it's all in the one place. <laughs> Something. That's about it. It's bad. Yeah. It's bad. And it'll be even worse now. <laughs> I was watching. Um, I finally caught up with Mission Impossible Fallout um, a few weeks ago. And I, that's a franchise that really does take the, the ticking clock sometimes past the limit of, you know, and you don't actually get to see the the whether he did it or not. Oh, yeah, he's alive. He must have done it. So we we I don't think we haven't had that in the Bond series where the con, the conclusion is off screen. I I I'll make an argument that Quantum does because as far as I can tell the the actual conclusion is the tearing down of the dams mm. which you never actually see happen. There's a reference that you know go ahead and do this after I'm gone, but uh, that kind of happens off screen. We don't we don't see uh, Green get his comeuppance. We see uh, Bond yeah, leads him out in the middle of the desert, but we're told yeah. later oh and he was found with a quart of oil in his stomach or whatever it was yeah I've, I've always found that very stupid even though bond gave him the oil why would he drink it see i assume that uh quantum caught up to green and made him drink it um but i don't know that's uh, that's the only thing i can i've never i've never, I'd never considered that. i, I okay. I'll, i've always been confused by that myself if she said simply that they found him with oil I don't know. Maybe in a, in a moment of, of desperation, you you when you're starving and thirsty, you would try. I I don't know. But the fact that they said that he had two bullets and the oil. See, that's that, that's where I kind of got confused. Right. That's what made me think that Quantum caught up to Green, and made him drink the oil and then shot him or whatever. But you know that it was somehow something like that. So do you th- do you think after Bond left him, he he he. He took the oil with him just in case he came uh, across a <laughs> needed car. Needed a service. Needed a service. It's re- it's in perfect shape except there's love on oil. <laughs> it just needs an oil change. It's, yeah. It's, why, why, carry, why carry the weight of it if you've if you've got like a two day walk ahead of you? <laughs> the car is ready to go. But I suppose Quantum had uh, plenty of resources, so he left the oil behind, and they came. With See, I think. 
I think the uh, the reveal for Bond 25 is going to be that Spectre is really a subsidiary of Acme Incorporated, the same company that sold the uh, Coyote all his defective equipment. But <laughs> um, Is it more likely that we'd have a good film if the stakes are lower and we're at higher risk of a poor film if the stakes are really high because of the unrealistic aspect of the plot? Um, like, is it, a, is, 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 is it, is it, is it, a, if you were to write a Bond film tomorrow, is it a safer bet to go with a smaller plot, smaller scale plot and get a quality film out of it? Or do you go all in on the big stuff? The the problem is, I've said this before, that um, in the 21st century cinema world we're living in, um, I don't think you can do it from Russia with love anymore. And I think that in terms of spectacle, I think you only live twice is like the floor, not in terms of going into space specifically, but in terms of that level of spectacle. And I'm not sure... It's a good question. I'm just thinking if you want Bond to be playing the billion dollar club, I'm not sure you can have a small, intimate, small stakes plot anymore. You could argue Skyfall was. And you could argue Casino Royale was. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, so to make up, though, in terms of the stakes, you have to have add all this spectacle to it. So, for example, with Casino Royale, you basically take out an entire block of the city of Venice. Um, we knocked down a derelict house in Scotland in Skyfall. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe the stakes are comparable or even smaller than From Russia With Love, but you've got to put all this kind of bells and whistles to it that you didn't necessarily do before. I, I, th- I think you can... I think we're sort of talking about two different things at this point because I think that you can have a plot that does not have very high stakes, but you do have to deliver it a certain way. Uh, I mean, I, I sort of feel like Quantum is that is the filmmaker saying, like, you know, look, we're not we're, we're not going to blow up the world, we're not going to nuke, uh, you know, or start World War Three, but we need to deliver something that has, you know, these very grounded shaky cam style fight scenes, et cetera. Uh, I, I, I know what you're saying is as far as you need to deliver a certain amount of spectacle, but, but certainly the big over the top plot does not necessarily. In fact, I would say today that the filmmakers would probably stay very far from a high stakes plot because see, it's funny because I feel like the filmmakers today are very afraid to sort of get looked at as being hokey and corny uh, that's why you have Mission Impossible going crazy with these crazy gadgets and a, a full-blown nuclear bomb plot, whereas Bond does not feel comfortable doing that anymore. Uh, so, yeah, I, I would – they're, they're trying to deliver spectacle without getting too over the top in their plots. It's a very fair assessment last few years. So looking forward, No Time to Die – I mean, we've had the very basic Act One plot synopsis, right? Which is, you know, Felix recruits Bond to help him track down a captured scientist, kidnapped scientist. And there's going to be an hour and a half of car chases. 
Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. With multiple Aston Martins. Um, I, are we going to see one of those films where the plot is slowly unpeeled towards the end, judging by what we know the film so far? Well, well, or, or is it going to be not- like you know, like Bond gets jumps to Jamaica after the Italian sequences, and it's like, and and Felix just lays it all out like over the bar, over a beer. Um, I don't think so because in that same plot synopsis, if it's to be believed, it's like Felix recruits him and for this one thing involving a missing scientist, but then it turns out there's more than meets the eye, or however they phrased it in that plot synopsis. So it sounds like they're going to at least to attempt to not throw it all at you right from the start. Um, particularly if it turns out that Rami Malek is really Dr. No, but, uh, <laughs> uh, which a theory I'm not endorsing. I just want to make clear, but you know, if there's some, particularly if there's something particularly unusual about Malik's character. Well, um, to give credence to that idea, why haven't they released the name of his character? Yeah. Why have they not shown a still of him? Uh, well, there's no still in, in the role. Full stop, but yeah. That is an interesting, uh, they they haven't even bothered to give him an alias. No. They haven't even tried the Oberhauser thing. Right. Right. It's <laughs> interesting. So maybe and I'm not saying there's anything to that idea. Um but I think it's interesting that they've been very oblique with the villain on this one. He, Whereas he, he, previous he, previous movies, the publicity department's like, here's the baddie, this is what they're gonna do. Yeah, yeah. right. He he could be he could be Bond's second uh, foster brother after uh, after Bond left oh, the care right. of Oberhauser. <laughs> he, he, was, he he spent some time with with um, hmm. uh, Remy Malik's uh, father, and so there's a there's a whole new world to be explored there. They, they all met at summer camp. Um, <laughs> oh, it's Mr. White's ex-wife remarried. <laughs> you gave me a wedgie bond and I haven't forgotten it. <laughs> yeah, I think you've got it, Bill. <laughs> oh, oh, uh, Michael Wilson's calling. But never mind. Yeah. <laughs> So I don't think um, I don't think we're we're going to see a ticking clock in the Craig era. It's probably not going to happen. I wonder if there's a possibility that we'll, we'll get something to that effect. I mean, you know, when I hear something about the, you know, again, just just based on preliminaries and what they've told us, uh, you know, he's a scientist and he's he's chemicals and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it, I, I sort of feel like I can I can hear the makings of one of those kind of plots. You know, we're, we're building a, a dirty bomb or something that's going to go off or he's going to threaten the world with it, et cetera. Not, 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 definitely not making that prediction, but I, I, I can see the, the seeds of it possibly. I, I don't know how you do a ticking clock with genetics. Well, that's, that's you know, true, too. That's a tough one to do. All right, guys. Well, I think we've milked the villain's plots for all it's worth. Um, a few months ago, when we started looking for interesting music to end these, on um i stumbled across a song about blofeld which is you know if you read the lyrics it's actually quite funny about how he always screws up his relationships with women because he's obsessed with taking over the world i found another one which i think is actually better and it's actually a love song to the blofeld of you and live twice and how they could be very happy living in the volcano together so that will play us out this week <laughs> um, just uh, 
uh, leaves me to thank David, Joseph, and Bill. Thanks for joining us this week. Thank you for having me on again. Thanks for having me. And always fun to be here.
Volcano left with you.